Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. If you'd like to know more about our work, you can go to chnetwork.org or you can go to deepinscripture.com where you can find out more about this program as well as access all the archives from the from the beginning of our program. We're in the middle of a study of Romans. I hope those of you that are following us uh, are enjoying this. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're in almost exactly in the middle, of, well, a little beyond the middle of Romans. We're in uh, today looking at Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 30, and we'll try to get to verse 13 of chapter 10. We're in the middle of Paul's discussion answering the question of at least that he presumed was in the minds of the early Christians who were in Rome. Rome was a mixed congregation of former Jews and former Gentiles, former pagans, who had both accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, were trying to live out their faith in the midst of pagan Rome. And Paul is writing to them. He's not visited them yet. He's not, as far as we know, met them in person. But he's communicating to them, uh, anticipating that he will see them. And he's in the middle of this passage dealing with why, uh, what about the, the Jews to whom our Lord had come? What about those Jews who've not accepted the Messiah? Uh, what's happening with him? Why, why has this happened? Why has God allowed this to happen? Is it God's fault or is it their fault? Uh, how do you understand that? And it's all, if you look at the bigger context, it's all combined with this idea of God's sovereignty, God's predestination, God's plan, his will, both in a big sense for the world, for the sense of his chosen people, and then also for e each of us individually. And we're moving, I have to apologize, last week I, I said that uh, as a, when I was a pastor, I never preached on these chapters because they were a bit difficult, and they are, especially chapter 9 and chapter, uh, chapter 11. But I have to take that back, I lied. I looked back and, <laughs> and in fact, uh, I preached a lot on Romans chapter 10, uh, especially verses... Uh, 9 through 15 were some of my favorite passages. Uh, Ken, maybe I should pass this over to you for a second, because I think it is important to put these verses in the, the wider context of this section of Romans. Well, I'm, I'm glad today, Marcus, that we are beginning with uh, chapter 9, verse 30, when Paul asked the question, so then well, what shall we say? Uh, this is his typical um rhetorical strategy for introducing a very um, a very important subject and the subject that he's introducing for us today is this odd uh, occurrence that the Gentiles uh, the pagans who do nothing of the God of Israel um, they weren't even pursuing righteousness of the law they didn't even know the law except in their conscience and yet they've obtained this righteousness this righteousness that's come through faith and Israel on the other hand seeking a righteousness that comes from the law and they did not attain to that righteousness 
And so he's asking this question then, um, you know, what what accounts for this odd situation? Now, in the first part of chapter 9, um, Paul did not point to the people of Israel. He did not point the finger of blame, so to speak, and say, well, it was because they did not believe. Um, rather, he was asking the question, well, they have not believed, and that's obvious, but does that mean that God's word has just fallen flat? And that seems to be the way the question he's asking back in chapter 9, verse 6. And his answer to that is no, because um, he gives us this principle in chapter 9, verse 6, that not all Israel is Israel. And he gives examples of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and and Ishmael, but it was only through Isaac that the seed of redemption was called. In the same way when Rebekah, uh, Isaac's wife, had two children, uh, she had uh, the twin boys, um, Jacob and Esau, uh, but it was only through Jacob that the uh, line was called. So what he first of all establishes is this complete freedom of God to have mercy upon him who have mercy. Now, at the same time, God gave the people of Israel the law through the covenant, and that was all to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And that's the odd situation in which Paul then is addressing um, at this point. How can this be that the people that were had so many gifts of the covenant, of the law, of the, of the cultists of the Old Testament, the, the literature of the uh, tabernacle and the temple, how is it that they could fail? And I think we hear in chapter 10, verse 1, um, Paul's true anguish. He really desires their salvation. But now his answer is not just that God has the freedom to have mercy, but now he does say the problem was that Israel fell into the trap of trying to establish their own righteousness rather than God's righteousness. As I was looking over this passage, Ken, um, and I do this every week, and maybe it's just in my bones, but I I read over this passage a number of times. I think about any of the listeners at home that might be taking the challenge to lead a Bible study in their local parish. But what a great thing, and I would encourage anyone to do that. That's one of the reasons we give you these resources, just as a, an assistant and a help. Can, neither Ken or I are claiming to have the last word on how these should be interpreted. But but another way that I think, Ken, about this is I imagine having that great privilege again to be in a pulpit on Sunday preaching from this passage. Uh, I kind of yearn for that, which, uh, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, that's, that's what I had to set aside years ago. But uh, I loved that, and I think about this passage. Because one of the dangers that can happen, both from perspective of a preacher as well as a congregation, is that we can we can read and study and 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 listen to these words in Romans, and be, and remain unattached to what's going on. We can see them as something that happened two thousand years ago. There's the Apostle Paul writing a letter to these Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, and we can we can enjoy that and and listen unattached. He's talking to them. What's it got to do with us? Here we are in the 21st century. Well, he's talking back then. 
And or we can say, well, is he is he trying to deal with the issues that are happening now over in the Middle East? Is that the problems that this applies to? And again, we're uh, we're we're uh, uh, we're pushing this away from ourselves. He's talking about somebody else. And uh, you know, as I thought about this passage, Ken, there are familiar verses in this passage that all of us have heard before, and they're preachable. Uh, you know, the idea that he who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's in verse 33. Or everyone who has faith may be justified. That's preachable. Verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I've preached on that. Um, Verse 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I've preached on that. I've heard sermons over and over again. But Ken, as I was looking at this this morning, the, the verses that jumped out at me that I never noticed before that seem to me that have the biggest connection with what Paul was dealing with at that time to us today are in verses 10, 2, and 3, in which he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Ken, I think this idea of unenlightened zeal based on ignorance hmm. is a problem that pervades today that Paul was dealing with then. He was dealing with it when he looked back at Israel. He was dealing with the problem in the early church, and it goes today. What do you think? The problem of unenlightened zeal for God based on ignorance. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could give you multiple illustrations of that truth, but let's think, first of all, back to chapters um seven and eight of the book of Acts, and then chapter nine, where Paul himself uh, would say, and he says this, I think in um, 1 Timothy later on, he says, you know, that I persecuted the church of God, even though I didn't know that I was, I didn't know that that what I was doing was wrong. Oh, perfect example. So Paul himself was zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. And so what he says here that about his fellow Jews, he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. I think this is a significant. They attempt to establish their own righteousness. Let me give you at least two illustrations of this that come from very different sources. Some years ago, I was talking with a woman after Mass, and it was at a chapel that um, <clears throat> where there had been some apparently some apparitions or some locutions or so forth. And this woman was troubled by the fact that there were certain people that had received messages from Mary, supposedly. These were locutionists. That is, they were people that thought not they'd seen anything, but they had heard you know, Mary giving them messages from heaven. And there was one, and these were both here in the Midwest, in the United States. One of them said one thing, and the other one said the opposite. And then the woman asked me, well, well who should I believe? Who should I follow? <laughs> and I paused, and I said, 
follow the magisterium. That's why we're Catholic. We believe that God guides us through the magisterium of the church. We don't know whether God is speaking through these, you know, woman or man or whoever it was. We don't know that God is speaking. The church never even encourages us or or asks us to believe when people have these private revelations, if in fact they are. But the church does say, follow scripture, follow tradition, follow the magisterium. But here's my point. She she had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. Uh, The other day I was listening to a... uh, a, a short a short section of a debate between Richard Dawkins, the uh, professor of Oxford University who is a professor of public, uh, the public understanding of science, and a mathematician who is a Christian, Professor John Lennox. And in this interview, I was uh, entering this debate that was going on. Um, I was impressed by the fact of how... Um, unknowledgeable Richard Dawkins was about the deep questions of philosophy and theology. There's a good reason, because he believes that you substitute science for philosophy and theology. Now, my point is not to go in that today, but in other words, he's ignorant of the basic facts, the basic questions, and how they can and cannot be answered. He has a zeal for his worldview, which is militant atheism, but he doesn't have it according to knowledge. And so what Paul is saying here, and what happens when you do that, is you begin to substitute. Now, that, there's that language of verse 3 that you pointed us to, Marcus, is very important. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. People seek to establish their own view of things when they don't have the proper knowledge of what God has revealed to us. And that's the fundamental nature of idolatry, is to seek to establish yourself and your own view rather than God's way. Ken, following up on the, on the illustrations you gave, just those quotes that I read a moment ago from this section of Romans, any which of those can form the perfect text for a, a, an evangelistic sermon. Uh, uh, you can imagine uh, a preacher getting up in the pulpit before thousands of people and proclaiming everyone who has faith may be justified. Or if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are preachable and they're true. They're wonderful in the context of the wider faith. But all around us are churches that believe those things, but believe other things that are in their zeal. For example, I know of some that in their great zeal for God, believe that all Christians are wrong unless they worship on Saturday. And so we have our Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters who separate themselves from all of the Christians because in their zeal for God, They believe that this is the one interpretation of Scripture that therefore would make you right with God. And but they they pulled that out of the greater history of the church. Uh, And this was happening in the early church when the reason for that first council in Jerusalem that we find discussed in Acts chapter 15 were the Jewish Christians that 
did not want to let go of the Old Testament references to circumcision, demanding in their zeal for God that every new Christian must be circumcised. And so that became a great conflict in the early church that had to be settled by revelation of God to Peter, and then Paul, and then James, who was the bishop of Jerusalem, following the advice of Peter, to therefore say no, that this is not what God is calling the church to follow. And basically, we see baptism being the sign of the covenant, not circumcision. And, you know, so again, zeal for God, great zeal, but not enlightened by revelation, and therefore ignorant of how God is guiding the church. And we see this even, Ken, I mean, you're the the early church scholar in terms of the um, uh, the early church fathers. I mean, there were some great early church fathers who began in the right direction, but again, out of their own zeal for the faith, began to question the magisterium of the church, began to lean in in the direction of a more scripture-alone direction, and they ended up drifting from the church. I think about Origen, and I think about Tertullian are good Mm -hmm. examples of they were just about right, but in time they drifted because just as you said here, they were seeking to establish their own understanding of what it means to be righteous before God. Mm, yeah. You know, and when you were talking there, Marcus, it reminded me of a a verse in uh, the book of Jude, the little letter of Jude, <laughs> you know, the, nec- the next to the last book of the New Testament. And this is where Jude, uh, the, the apostle Jude is writing. He says that, brethren, I... I want to make all diligence to write to you. Or I, I was making diligence. I, I was being diligent to write to you about our common salvation. But then I had need of writing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to God's holy people. There's a faith that has been delivered to the apostles. It was then passed on through the church. One of the things that convinced me to become a Catholic was this idea of succession. That is, the idea is right there in the New Testament. Paul says it in Second Timothy two two, a verse that you know many of us as evangelicals memorized, where where Paul says, you know, that commit these things to faithful men, who in turn will be able to teach others also. And when you think about that, there's four generations there. There's Paul passing it on to Timothy, and Timothy passing it on to faithful men. And then it says, who will be able to teach others also? So there's four generations there. In other words, the the, the purpose of being a uh, servant of the church, whether as priest or as clerical, um, to being a bishop, of being even being the pope, the whole purpose of it is not to make up anything new, but to pass on the faith. And the danger has always come in those who believe that they know better, who now have been enlightened by God in such a way that they they know better. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't question and examine and so forth and try to for the purpose of understanding. But it's not for the purpose of departure from the faith. It's a question of moving more deeply into the faith. Um, in fact, I, yeah, this is very much on my mind because uh, this past week I finished up an article that will be in our coming home 
Network newsletter for the month of March, and it's the beginning of five uh, articles that I'm doing about the question of um, of what is real conversion. The first point I made was that it's about being deep in history. That is, you, you're connected with the past. And whenever you look in the times, you mentioned Origen and Tertullian. Uh, on the positive side, there was Cyprian, and there were people in his day like uh, uh, Novation who were departing from the faith. They were doing so because they were trying to be separate from the church. We can never be separate from the church in our reading of Scripture. And so what Paul is saying here is to remind, he's, he's not challenging the Jewish tradition as he's trying to get to the essence of what the true Jewish tradition is. In the same way, when we have difficulties and questions, we should try to get to the true essence of what the Catholic tradition is. You know, it's interesting about this. I mean, Ken, thanks for that. And in fact, I'm looking forward to reading your article here in a bit as we get it ready for the newsletter because I'm excited about your your series. And I encourage anyone listening, if you don't get the newsletter, go to the website. We'd love to have you on our mailing list to get the monthly conversion stories and, and other articles about growing deeper in Jesus Christ. But as I think about this passage, it seems to me that the the overall question here is because Paul is referring all through this section, he's using Old Testament scriptures to argue his point. Um, it's, he's not just basing it on his opinion. He's basing it on the revelation he's received from God and the tradition of the church and the scriptures. But, he's, but it's not a scripture alone because, um, in other words, he's not just doing verse after verse after verse to therefore prove a point as if it's just the Old Testament scriptures alone. He's demonstrating that the Old Testament scriptures, when understood in the context of the revelation of Christ, bring us to the truth. That the the Old Testament scriptures alone are not sufficient to point us to Christ. Our Lord Jesus demonstrated that himself when he was walking with the two apostles along the road to Emmaus. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand what the death of Jesus meant until our Lord, walking with them along the Emmaus road, explains to them what the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. Then it made sense. So the Old Testament scriptures, infallible, Within the context of the revelation of Jesus Christ, now they make sense. And that's what Paul is doing in this section of Romans. Well, this reminds me, too, of a, right now in the, uh, in the daily readings of the Mass, um, in the daily Mass, we're reading through the, the letter to the Hebrews, right? And um, the, the letter begins almost not as a letter. It begins as a treatise which says, in many ways and many times, God spoke to our fathers in the past in the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in a son, whom he has made the heir of all things, and through whom he made the ages of the world. In other words, the definitive revelation of the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world changes the way we look at the Old Testament Scripture. So, back in chapter 9, in verse 33 that you quoted earlier, 
Um, he says, I lay a foundation, I lay a stone of stumbling and a rock of scandal in Zion, and he who believes in him will not be ashamed. Christ is that rock, both a rock of that one can stand firm on or a rock of stumbling. If one does not believe, one stumbles over him. And what Paul is saying here is that all of those texts now of the Old Testament come alive in their meaning precisely because we have the right lens through which to view those texts. And that that is through Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So Christ is the very center of the Old Testament scriptures, as you mentioned there, as he was explaining to those on the way to Emmaus that day after that day of the resurrection, in which he said that was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and to rise again. And this is the fulfillment of what God was bringing about in all of the pedagogy of the Old Testament. But now it's all capsulized in one place, one voice, one person, Jesus Christ. I can't help but think, Ken, again, you're the scholar on this, that so much was changed in the interpretation of this by, by Brother Luther, <laughs> by Martin Luther. And uh, really it came about through his own struggle with the very things we're looking at in this passage as he himself did not experience personally the peace and joy of God. What's wrong? What's, what's, what's wrong with my life if I'm not experiencing that? So the context we see here is we see the Gentiles, hey, they got this righteousness when they didn't it through faith. Israel tried to get it through the law and they didn't receive it. So what's the problem? So Luther's answer was it's throwing out the law throwing out all those stipulations and leaving faith alone. But that's not what Paul is saying here. And that's the danger of interpreting these scriptures based on our own experience, on our own needs, on our own struggles, seeing it through the lens of ourselves. How do I apply these to me? How do I get closer to God? based on my own life. So then I read the scripture through my own experience and come up with a new theology. To a certain extent, Origen did that, Tertullian did that, and so did Luther. And as a re- end of result, we have a whole movement of Christians that can't even speak to one another because of the way we interpret scripture. We're gonna take a break and come back to that and specifically look like what it means what this means to follow the law in the faith of Jesus Christ. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. 
next time on The Journey Home. Marcus's guest is revert to Catholicism, Gary Zimmick. He'll discuss how the Holy Spirit led him back to the Catholic Church on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and, and Ken Hull, and uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 9, 30 through 10, 13. And admittedly, we're not going through this verse by verse, phrase by phrase. I'm assuming that you have before you your, your own copy of the Scriptures. Um, and what I'd like to do in our remaining time, Ken, is to focus most of our attention on verses 5 through 13. They, they are so crucial. Um, but just before we jump into that, let's make sure that there's, there's, we've kind of covered verses 30 through verse 4 sufficiently um, in, in that, that, that section there. Uh, and the idea, it seems to me, with this zeal, unenlightened zeal based on ignorance, is it would seem to me that, that what Paul's not casting judgment on those who have this unenlightened zeal for God by any means. He's just pointing out the fact of what happens when our unenlightened zeal is not based on the truth. And they were, uh, they had the law. He's not saying, as Luther said, is that the, the answer is to throw out the, all the works. But the problem was the motive behind our doing what's right, the motive behind following the laws, the rules, the regulations, the teachings of our church. And that's where their zeal had gotten misplaced. Paul was not throwing out the, the law. And for I want to point out a passage, Ken, that I think is really crucial. And that is in Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Paul is, is defending his faith because he's being accused of, of the very thing that he's defending in this passage in Romans, and that is that he's being accused of throwing out the Jewish faith and replacing it with a new one. And he's been brought before uh, Felix in this passage in Romans, uh, and so he's He's having to defend his faith, and he has an opportunity to say, no, it's no longer the law, it's no longer works, it's faith alone. He has that opportunity. He doesn't say that. And we read in verse 14 of Acts 24 when Paul says, but this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, 
I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law or written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So there we see Paul admitting that it's not about throwing out the law or getting rid of works uh, as if it only involves some kind of mental acceptance of God, some faith alone, some always visit. It has to do with that motive that drives the way we live our lives. Um, and And the motive is a surrender to Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ means uh, not merely a mental set, but it is a surrender of all that we are. Paul will get to this in Romans chapter 12, but it's our whole being Mm -hmm. in surrendering to God. And that's the Mm -hmm. point of this. And, you know, if we go to two extremes, either faith alone is just what I think in my head that matters, doesn't matter what I do with my body. Or to the other extreme, as long as I obey the rules of the church, you know, I'm, I'm baptized, catechized, go to mass, I say my beads, as long as I do these things, God will save me. It has to do with what goes on in the heart. And Ken, it seems that that's where he moves to then in verses 5 through 13. Oh, Paul, that's right. And I think that verses 5 through 13 is prefaced by... You might say the transition, maybe the the linchpin here, where he says in verse 4 that Christ is the purpose or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's talking about the Jews, of course, that they they were doing all these righteous things, but they missed the, and the Greek word here is telos. He, they missed the telos. The, what, and that can be translated end or purpose or goal. In other words, the goal of the law was was Christ. It was to lead to that and to the righteousness which he would bring. And that righteousness which Christ would bring was, first of all, accepted by faith. But as you rightly pointed out, it's not a faith that's a bare faith, a faith alone, so to speak. It's a faith that is a commitment of the total person. And that commitment of the total person is very clear, I think, in verses 9 and uh, 9 through 13, where he talks about that there's a twofold way of thinking about it. One is the confession with the mouth. That's the outward and the external. The other is believing in the heart. That's the internal. There's always been the external and the internal. In other words, if you just do the external but are not changed inwardly, it does you no good. But if you retreat only to the inward and don't live outwardly uh, the, the, the commandments of God, then it one, one, it demonstrates that your faith inwardly is not genuine. And two, your faith is incomplete. It isn't committed. It isn't being completed in love, which love being the goal of all faith. Ken, I'm so glad you point out verse four. Um, Christ is the end of the law. You know, I, it reminded me of my favorite verse from the Old Testament, um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which for me has been the kind of the map for my life uh, back 40 years ago when good old Pastor Tom, that congregational pastor that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ and, and it changed my life. And he's the one that pointed out to that verse to me. 
which for, to this day still uh, stands as the guiding uh, verse for my life. I've got to post it on my wall here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It seems to me that that, in fact, verse 7, you could add, be not wise in your own eyes for the fear of the Lord and turn away from evil. It seems like that Old Testament understanding of what it means to walk with God is summarized in that verse you pointed out, for Christ is the end of the law. It is He is the end of life. He's, as St. Thomas Aquinas really makes a distinction, that the, what's important about an act is the end, the purpose of an act, of your desire, of your plan. Um, we, we talk about what are you going to do with retirement, Ken? You know, saving your money. What, uh, you know, what do you want? And it's all about what's the end? What's the purpose? What's the goal? Why do we do things? Why do we hoard things? Why do we get stuff? What's the end? This coffee cup that's sitting here, what's the end of that? What's the purpose of it? And that's the point. Uh, you know, what, what is the end? And, and when we commit our lives to this, the end of our life, not, I don't mean the, the period at the end of a sentence, but the trajectory, or as Paul talks about in Philippians uh, 3, forgetting what lies behind, I press onward, the upward call, the upward, the trajectory. What is the end, the direction? Why are you doing these things? Why are you helping your neighbor? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're praying and you're giving alms or you're, you're acting, you're doing fasting, if you're doing that, if the end of that is to impress your neighbor, that's your reward. But if the end of it, the trajectory, is the Father and being pleasing before God, then your reward will be in his hands. So this idea of confessing with your lips and believing with your heart, it's not about manipulating God. It's not about impressing our neighbor. It's not about looking like a great, it's what's going on in your heart and the end of it must be Jesus. And that's what I think the, 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 the writer of Proverbs was saying, trusting in the Lord with all your heart, not relying on our understanding, our insight, but in all your ways, the trajectory, the end, is Him. And as you pointed out, this, the, the fulfillment of this Old Testament passage is Jesus Christ. If we do that, He will make our path straight. He'll bring us to Christ. He'll bring us to righteousness. He'll bring us to eternal salvation in Him. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, that's a beautiful way, the way you've just outlined that. The <clears throat> And I might say just parenthetically before looking at one of these verses, that that question of ends or purposes or goals is one of the most fundamental problems in our modern world. We don't know what the purpose of sex is. We don't know what the goal of marriage is. We don't know what the yeah. goal of, of, of even education is. I mean, when I look at education, being, having been an educator for you know many, many years, I've reflected on this a lot. 
And I'm just amazed how many people go through the motions of education, but they don't know why they're doing it. They don't know what the purpose is. You know, it was the uh, the atheistic philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. I don't agree with much of what he said, but this he was right about. <laughs> and that is, uh, Nietzsche said that if you you don't need to tell me the how. I'm paraphrasing here. But if a man knows the why, then he can find out the how. In other words, if, if you've got to know what the purpose or the yeah. goal of all these things is. And that's where secularism really erodes true faith, is it leaves, it leaves the world without any goals or purposes, except those we construct on our own. You know, so that the goal of sex is to have pleasure, and that's what goal, That's what it is. Or the goal of money is to feel comfortable, and that's what we do. In other words, and there's very little reflection upon this in our school systems, yeah. in homes, and in discussion groups, and so forth and so on. But for the Christian, whether Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, they ought to take this verse very seriously. Christ is the end of the purpose of the law. In other words, it's to know Christ. And that's why he goes on in verses 6, Marcus, and 7. And he asks these questions that's, well, let's put it this way. Probably you and I wouldn't have quoted these texts <laughs> from our modern perspective. But that, that that's a challenge for us to say. When he says that, that Moses is talking about the righteousness of faith— what does that righteousness, how does it speak? How does it present itself? And he says, do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss that is to raise Christ up. In other words, what he's saying there is that you and I do not have the power to change reality. Uh, Christ is died and he has risen and we can't change that. That's, that's reality. Now the question is, how are we going to respond to that? And then he quotes this text from Deuteronomy 30 in verse 8, where he says, and this is in 10.8, a quotation, he says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And in other words, what he's saying here is this, I think, like Moses was saying to the Old Testament people, Paul is saying to the new covenant people of God, both Jew and Gentile, he's saying, look, it isn't all, it, it's closer than you think. All, all that is, uh, all that you have to do is to recognize that. But that's the most difficult thing of all, is to recognize that it's a matter of loving God with all your heart. Because the thing that seems so simple is also the most difficult thing for any human being to do. And that is to lay down our pride and to rely upon God in all that we do. We confess with our mouth, we believe in the heart. That is the key to finding the righteousness of God. I'm thinking about the, the many times when our Lord talked about the kingdom of God being near, mm-hmm. now, intimate, uh, imminent, um, the reign of God. And, you know, people are looking out there somewhere. It's out there, or, you know, and, and he's trying to say, wait a second. No, 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 it's, it's right here. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it, it, it's intimate with us. It's in our heart. And he talks in many passages, I think, about John 15, about this intimate abiding of he and us and us and him. John 17, he wants this unity of the Father. The unity that we should have is the same, that intimacy we have. So my point of mentioning this in verse 9, which 
again, I've heard preached, and I've preached on it a bazillion times, almost like it's a formula. And if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes with his heart and so is justified, and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. Again, it almost reminds me of of uh, almost uh, the idea of a magical incantation that I have, yeah. if I have the right words, if I do the right act, you know, it reminds me of that old uh, Fantasia cartoon where yeah. Mickey Mouse, you know, the the the, uh, the wizard's asleep, and so Mickey Mouse finds the wand, and then all of a sudden, all the brooms are are coming alive, and you know, and water's everywhere because he happened to have the right tool, this magical thing. So it, you know. And I've heard it almost preached this way, that if you can, the words coming out of your mouth in a magical way, if you say these words, um, or if you believe it in your heart, then it's then you've arrived. Yeah. The right. one saved, always saved. To the date, mm-hmm. the time, the minute, way back when at some Bible camp, sitting on your knees, you know, kneeling on your knees before the, the altar and yeah. you confess Jesus, well, now you're saved. And then the verses are quoted, verse 11, because no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name will be saved as if nothing else matters. But the point of it is, everything else does matter. Because if, in fact, you confess with your lips and believe in your heart, you are a different person. You've been changed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now you are in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. And if you haven't already, then that acceptance and surrender to Jesus Christ is confirmed in baptism. Baptism means, is always signified, is this enlightenment. It's interesting, Ken, back in verse 2, he talks about they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. He uses the word enlightened there, which is the other word that he often uses as the word to mean they've been baptized. They've received the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's what he talks about in Ephesians 1.13, that they've heard, they've believed, they've been enlightened, because through baptism they've been changed, and now they are children of God. That's what's happening in verses 9 and 10, not really just this act of confession, but a complete surrender of the whole person. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you've pointed here today to to two ways in which the Christian faith, the Catholic faith, can be distorted and really become non-Christian, non-Catholic. One is through legalism, through, and and we talked about that. That's what the Jews fell into, and that came back up in the Church of the History of the Church in Pelagianism. Pelagianism was the idea that one could save oneself by obedience to the law. But the other one that you've mentioned here is when you speak of using verse 9 about confession as if it's a magical incantation. People can treat, can change faith and religion and devotion to God into a magical worldview. If you just you know, put this coin in the machine, God is like the great celestial machine who gives you the answer. Or maybe it's a little more realistically, you you send in a hundred dollars and God is going to make it a thousand dollars. And we've certainly heard that one before, yep. have we? Yep. Well, it's the same way here. 
if if this confession of this belief is is a matter of your subjective sincerity, then you can make that religion as a as a as a form of magic. What Paul is drawing on here is something that goes way back into the Old Testament. That is, obedience to the law is important, but it has to be correspond to an inner obedience that is animated by and motivated by a love of God. What Paul is, when he's emphasizing here about the justification, the righteousness that comes through faith, what he's saying is that nothing that we can, no amount of, of good works and of that we can do can save us, but he's saying that through trust and faith in God, then we want to do those works. He's going to talk about that in chapters 13 and 14. He's going to talk about the moral obligations of the Christian. And I'm reminded here of that text in Galatians, one that maybe our hearers wouldn't mind memorizing. It's Galatians 5, verse 6, when he's talking about whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, you're Jew or Gentile, he says that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. There's the summary right there, I think, of Paul's theology, that faith works itself out in love into another. And this is what the church means when it says that the goal of faith is charity. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that three abide faith, hope, and charity, but charity, the greatest of these is charity or love. In other words, that love of God, that love of neighbor for the sake of God, that is true faith. And when we do that, then we can be assured of eternal life. I'm thinking of a statement in the catechism, Ken. Um, it's in the 800s. I don't have it in front of me. I, I probably could look it up real quick. But where the magisterium makes a very important statement, and it, it's, it's from Lumen Gentium, the, the document from Vatican II, but it's the, the magisterium is speaking to Catholics in which, you know, after talking about the necessity of being in the church and necessity of being Catholic, he also says, now wait a second, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic because you cannot be saved unless you have charity. Yeah, that's right. You know, the necessity of this little formula, if I may say, faith working through love, that isn't a one-time moment of accepting Jesus, confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord, as if in that that uh, phrase, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, where it says uh, a person cannot say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, uh, you cannot say, Jesus, be cursed, uh, right. you know, right. if you're speaking in the Spirit. As if that phrase, that earliest of all creeds, Jesus is Lord, which we believe was probably one of the earliest proclamations in the church, um, which is maybe the phrase that they had to say when they were brought before Caesar, who was Lord? Jesus is Lord as opposed to Caesar. As if by saying that alone, everything's solved. You know, eternity has been changed for me because I've said the phrase, Jesus uh, Christi, um, you know, the, Jesus is the Christ. Um, no, it is a lifelong journey of faith working through love. 
We, we become in Christ through faith, through accepting him, through baptism. But that's the beginning. Then our Lord calls us to abide in him for the rest of our lives. And that's a daily, every moment surrendering everything that he's talking about here, growing in love. So that in the end, when people see us, they see Jesus. That's the point. And I think what he says in verse 12 is significant here, for he says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows us riches upon all who call upon him. Doesn't matter Jew or Greek, black or white, male or female, Paul will say in Galatians. It has to do with our Lord Jesus reaches out to all of us to surrender to him. Well, and that's what that's what the, the document on the church, Lumen Gentium, says, the one that you pointed to earlier. It says that he is rich toward all, and that therefore salvation, although difficult, may not be beyond the possibility. And he speaks about those outside the church, that is, like you and I were, Marcus. And he says that they cannot be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was found that is necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. But he goes on to speak about those that are cradle Catholics, that are have been born and or rather baptized into the Church. He says, even though incorporated into the Church, one cannot, however, one who ever does not persevere in charity is not saved. All children of the church should remember their exalted position and results not from their own merits, but from the grace of Christ. If they fail to respond in thought or word or deed to that grace, not only shall they not be saved, but they shall be judged more severely. In other words, this exalted position that Israel had made them more obliged uh, to believe in the Messiah. That's what gives Paul this tremendous anxiety and and angst about why they have it. In an analogous way, for us Catholics, we being in the church, we have a much greater responsibility to love God with all of our heart, precisely because we have this exalted position of being children of the church. Just one last thing. Thanks, Ken, for that. Awesome. Verse 13. Paul uses Joel 2.32, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to point out that the context of Joel is not just in the end of our lives, but right now. If you are in the midst of problems, struggle, despair, concern, that verse is a call to you to call upon the name of the Lord. He is near you and he wants to be closer to you, but he needs your response to him. That's what faith is all about. Ken, thanks for joining me today on this program today. All of you listening, thank you for joining us. Please go to deepinscripture.com. We'd love to hear your comments. God bless. See you again next week.